All right, so verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3 says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt know what I, not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so right there is the church in Sardis. And just another reminder, at the end of all these, you know, he that hath an ear to hear. Alright? So while he's talking to a specific church, those of us who are spiritual, there's lessons that we're supposed to learn from these. And in every one of these churches, you know, you could you could preach whole sermons on them. And there are there are things that we all can learn from with every one of these churches that are mentioned. And I think I briefly touched on this last week. Most people today like to teach the different church ages. And they like to kind of attach a period of time in history with each one of these churches so they can kind of teach church ages and then ultimately take us to the Laodicean church, which they'll say started like in the 1900s and up until that door opens up in heaven and that voice of a trumpet sounds and... You know, we're all going to get raptured out of here. That's the, that's what they need it to do. But that's just a bunch of foolishness. Every one of these things in here that we see at these churches, you can find churches like these throughout all of history. You can, any of these seven churches, you can find them in different places all throughout history. The reason that Americans are so caught up into this is because we are so much like the Laodicean church. But I personally think that is mostly an American thing. And here's just a little news flash for these pre-trib Fox News Baptists. America is not the center of the universe. And it's not the center of the biblical universe. Just end of story. But they think it is. You know, what's going on in America, that's just the church. You know, what's going on in their dead, pathetic church, that's just what's going on in every church all over the world. Dead wrong on that. But let's look at this church in Sardis. And let's see what some things that we can learn from this. And so, uh, notice how he says in verse 1, he mentions that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. I personally think what this is talking about is he's saying this church had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus is saying that they're dead. You know, you have a name that you live. You know, there's churches out there, they have a name, they have a, a name in the community that they are a good church, they are a loving church. Is that not the mentality of most churches today? Is what's our reputation in the community? And what do we have to do to make the community like us? And so what do they do? They're all community friendly. They never preach hard. They're always bringing in lost people to honor them in their church services. And then, you know, everybody, boy, that church is just wonderful. That church is great. You know, they've got all five stars on Facebook. You know, I mean, and, you know, nobody would ever say anything negative about that church. Yeah, because they have a name that they live, but the Bible says that they're dead. And let me tell you something. It's a lot more important what Jesus thinks about our church than what the world thinks about our church. Who cares if we have a reputation in this town? of being the greatest church, the best, you know, the best church, the most popular church, the most friendly church, if Jesus doesn't agree with that. He's the one that we're actually trying to impress. He is the one whose review we are concerned about. We're not concerned about other people's. And let me tell you, we've been getting some bad reviews around here lately. And you know what? I don't really care. I really don't care at all because I'm not trying to impress YouTube world and Facebook world and Google uh, I don't really care about those reviews. I laugh at most of the bad ones we get. I think it's funny. And the angrier they are, the more I like it because I know, alright, we triggered somebody. You know, They got to hear the truth. And you know, some, some people just aren't going to like it. I don't care about that. What I care about is what does Jesus think. And I personally believe that a church that Jesus says is a good church, a living church, one that He would give a five-star review to is probably going to get a one-star review from the world. It's just the way it's, the way it's going to be. You know why? Because the world doesn't like Jesus. And if we're like Him, they're not going to like us either. Sorry, Pastor Trendy, but that is, it's just the way it is. 
And we're going to be reproached for the name of Christ. And that's fine as long as it's because we're doing the right thing. And so, verse 2 says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. So this church is struggling. Not everything in this church is bad. Okay? But a lot obviously is bad. And we see too that a lot of people will look at, you know, they'll see churches that are out there and, you know, they're just preaching horrible doctrine. And, you know, people like me will criticize that. You know, I can't believe they're allowing that kind of blasphemy in the church. And they'll bring up, well, you know, they're doing this good. You know, they're, well, I'm glad they're doing that good. You know, I'm glad the Catholic Church preaches on the virgin birth. But, you know, at the same time, sometimes I wish they didn't preach any truth at all. Because then it'd be easier to expose them. It's actually the ones that do a little bit of both that are a little more tricky. And people often do that. But listen, if, it, if there are places out there they've got some things right, and you know what they ought to do? They ought to strengthen those things that remain. But you know what? They need to repent of the things that are wrong too. See, in, uh, And notice too what it says in verse 3. It says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. Okay? So this church here, he's like, you know, the things you have, hang on to it, but the things that are wrong, you need to repent of those things. You need to get these things right. And I like how Jesus is calling on this church to repent because, you know, a lot of times, if we're not careful, we can get this attitude of just wanting to call fire down on everybody all the time. And, you know, there's churches out there, they do, they've got a lot of issues. But you know what? I'm not asking the Lord to torch every pre trib church. Alright? And I think some people want that. Okay? I'm glad God doesn't torch every pre-trib church because you know this one was one for a while, not very long, but you know we we were for a while. I'm glad we didn't get torched. I'm glad that God doesn't torch every church you know that goes around saying all hail to the Jews. You know because when we I I was never real big into that, but I'd I'd have told you the land belongs to them, not those Muslims. You know, but the thing is, sometimes people just need to get right, and sometimes we need to give people a chance to get right. And if somebody, if they, if there's a church though that has things right, they're doing things good. Maybe it is a King James church. Maybe it is a church that's right on the gospel. They've got some other bad doctrine in there. That doesn't mean we ought to just compromise and ignore that stuff. We ought to call on them to repent. We ought to try to help them get things right. And that's what Jesus did here. He's calling on them to repent. They need to get these things right. And he says that if they won't watch, he's going to come on them as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Okay, now this passage once again, we see that term "I will come on thee as a thief." So is that a, is that a cross reference? As we were talking about before, church, the Ruckmanite cross references. Is that a cross reference to the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night? I mean, because we know the day of the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. He used the term thief. Talks about coming on them. Is that a cross-reference? Or is this just something specifically for that church? Well, here's the thing. I think this probably is something specifically for that church. However, I do believe there's a principle in here that lines up with the other passages we see where it talks about Jesus Christ coming as a thief. I can't dogmatically say when he's talking about this right here that he this is... Clearly a reference to the rapture, what he's talking about. But let's go look at Mark chapter 13 because I want to show you some very typical pre-trib double talk. And listen, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. I love pre-tribbers. I don't think they're unsaved because because they believe that. I I don't think that for a second. But at the same time, and you know what? I I have no problem with fellowshipping with pre-tribbers. As long as they can handle the fact that when I'm preaching, I'm nice to when I'm talking to them, but when I'm going to preach about end times and I'm going to debunk the pre-trib doctrine, I'm going to call it for what it is, and it's stupid. All right, It is a stupid doctrine, and the double talk that these guys do is ridiculous. And I want to show you some examples of how there is no consistency in that teaching, because that's the main, you know, that's the main teaching that we're up against in Baptist churches. But look what it says in Mark chapter thirteen, verse thirty-two. It says, "But of that day and that hour, cross-reference right there, you know, it talks about hour. I will not know what hour 
You know, so it, it, it could be. But I still wouldn't dogmatically say that what we're seeing there in Revelation 3 is necessarily talking about the rapture. But the principle is there. The, here's the principle. If we don't watch, He'll come on us as a thief. If we do watch, He won't come on us as a thief. Okay? For I believe that's specifically what He was saying to that church here. And it's specifically what He's telling us as believers. Alright? And he says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Now that's talking about the rapture when it says no man knoweth the day or the hour. Now the pre-tribbers are updating their position and they're trying to say that's not talking about the rapture. Because it's clear that the rapture in here is after the tribulation. We're not going to look at that tonight. But you all know that. You've seen it a thousand times. The rapture comes after the tribulation in this passage. And it says... No man knows the day or the hour, and pre-tribbers for decades have been saying, nobody knows the day of the rapture. You go to any pre-tribber and say, you know what, I know when the rapture is going to come. And they're going to say, no you don't, because no man knows the day or the hour. Okay, And the thing is, they're right when they say that. They are right when they say that, but then they're a hypocrite when they say, Matthew 24, and all of that discourse sermon is not the rapture. They are a hypocrite. Because this verse... They're saying it's about the rapture when they need it to be, but then when you show that event taking place after the tribulation, now it's not the rapture anymore. That, my friends, is hypocritical double talk. Let's keep reading. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. You know, so, and right there too, these same people, they want to say, watch means imminent. Alright? Watch, watch means imminent, but then they want to say that no, this is talking about the day of the Lord which is something that is at the end of the tribulation, well, how are we supposed to watch for that if we're not even supposed to be here when all that happens? Think about that for a minute. The double talk. Alright? These people are nuts. It says, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at cock crowing or in the morning, was coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto you all, watch. So we see here, he is telling, he is teaching us how important it is we watch. Alright? Because we don't know the day or the hour. Talking about the rapture. But they want to say, that's not talking about the rapture. But let's go to, go to, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Or no, 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because they want to tell us all those commands to watch, those things prove eminency. Those things, and the eminency all by itself proves a pre tribulational rapture. Well, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. This is right after 1 Thessalonians 4 when it gives the clearest description of the rapture that we see in the Bible. And then it says in verse 1, but of the times and seasons, brethren, Ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Okay? Referring to the rapture. Okay? The day of the Lord is when the rapture takes place. For when they shall say peace and safety, then the sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. They always want to say He's coming as a thief in the night like we won't see it coming, but they never read on just a few verses later saying, but you know what? You're, you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. What does that mean? If I'm not in darkness that that day will not overtake me as a thief, then that means He's not going to come on me as a thief, doesn't it? All right, am I stretching this here? If he's telling me to watch, and if I'm watching, if I'm ready, he's not going to come on me as a thief. Is that not exactly what he told that church in Sardis? It is the exact same thing. So even if what he's, the event he's talking about there is not the rapture, the principle, the wording is exactly the same as what he said about the rapture or the day of the Lord, whatever you want to call it. It says, ye are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So right there, and people like to go, you know, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. And now, and then they just want to assume it's the day of the Lord right there because it talked about now is our salvation nearer than we believe. But the thing is, no. Right now, we're the children of the day. In other words, 
we are walking in light. We are not in darkness. We see what's going on. We know what's going on. The day that it's referring to there in Romans, was it Romans 14? 13. Romans 13. That passage is, that, that is not talking about the day of the Lord. It's just talking about daytime. We are able to see. We are in the light. Why? Because we are watching. We're right with God. We've got our doctrine right. So guess what? He's not going to come on us as a thief. But He is on them. Those who are lost. Those who are not ready. Those who are asleep. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day. Alright? Of the day. We are of the day. Well, if the day always means day of the Lord, then it's already come because we are of the day. No, it's just talking about daytime. It's talking about light. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So can you see just the double talk of them wanting to say, thief in the night. Therefore, imminency. You're not going to see it coming. But the thing is, it's very clear that no, we're of the day. He's not going to come on us as a thief. That means if He's not going to come as a thief, we are going to know when it's about to happen. Alright, we, we will know if we're watching just like He said to the church in Sardis. If He said, if you will not watch, I'll come and use a thief. It means if they would watch, He would not come on them as a thief. Exactly what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's the exact same thing. It's what we see in Mark chapter 13. He's telling it, he's commanding the porter to watch. Why? So he won't come suddenly and find you sleeping. You need to be ready for his return. So, uh, look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And then, but once again, you know, they just like, you know, it says looking, it says looking. That means it can happen at any moment. It means imminency. And this is, this is just, I mean, this this type of thinking is just set in stone with these people. They'll you know just because Titus two says looking for that blessed hope that means it can come at any moment. All right, now let me show you another example of pre-trib double talk. Okay, if looking for that blessed hope means imminency, then they've got a big problem when you get to Second Peter chapter three and verse nine. It says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. Okay, Now, we have a problem. Is the earth going to be burned up at the rapture or at Armageddon? That's not when it's burned up. Okay, But understand, when it's talk, a lot of times when it's talking about the day of the Lord, it actually encompasses quite a bit of time. We'll get more into that into a later chapter. But the thing is, most pre-tribbers will tell you that there is a day coming after the tribulation when the earth and everything's going to be burned up. Well, right here it's telling us to look for it. Does that mean that's imminent? No, even they would admit a bunch of stuff's got to happen before that takes place. So why is it saying to look for it? Well, here's why we're supposed to look for it. Because of the fact we know it's coming. And the way we watch for it, it's, and I used this illustration I used the other day, it's like watching the mile markers on the road. Hey, we know we're going to get off at exit. Was it exit 40? Or uh, when you get coming to Rock Falls in 88? I'm not usually on 88. I forgot what exit is. 40. Is it 40? All right, exit 40. So you watch those mile markers, don't you? All right, why are you watching those things? So you know when you're getting close. And so if you're coming from the west, you know you're you're what you're looking for mile marker 30. Why? So you know when you're 10 minutes away. You know you're looking for the things that come before it. You're watching for the Morrison exit. You know, and then you're watching for the articles. You're watching for those things that come before. That's how we look for these things. Okay, Looking for them is just not blindly going through and then just boom, it's there. But that is the way these people think. 
And it's foolish. It's double talk. And there, there is no consistency. The pre-tribulation doctrine, there is no consistency anywhere in there. But preachers get away with it. They get away with it. And you can get up and you can preach whatever foolishness you want. They can have in the same conference, a preacher can get up and he can preach Matthew 24 as the rapture. And another guy can get up and preach that it's not the rapture. And first off, most people don't even notice it when that happens. And you can get away with it as long as you just say the magic words, pre-trib and pro-Jew. At that three score and ten conference they had, Bill Grady, he preached in there and talking about the Jews that God was going to go against His word, was going to break His own word to bring the Jews back. That's what Bill Grady taught. And then Sam Gipp, in that same conference, said if God doesn't take the Jews back, God will be breaking His word. Well, which one is it? At the end of the day, those two guys didn't get in a fight. Which one was right? Because at the end, all they had to say the magic words. Pro-Jew, go Israel. And then it's all okay. No matter how stupid your teaching is, no matter how foolish you are, you can get up and preach like they did. The alien, you know, we're going to you know, inhabit other planets one of these days. You can do like Sam Gipp. You can preach a zombie apocalypse. He got up at Providence Baptist College and taught about the 40-day zombie apocalypse. And you know what? They let him do it because he was defending pre-trib. Even though that killed imminency right there. But they were trying to defend pre-trib at that conference and they let him get up there in a Bible college and preach that kind of foolishness. You know what that's called? That is called desperation, my friends. These people are so desperate to hang on to this doctrine because it is slipping through their fingers. It is falling apart. And this, this I, don't, I do not believe this doctrine will survive another generation in fundamental Baptist churches. I do not, I do not believe that. I personally believe that most of these Baptist churches that are hanging on to these things will no longer be Baptist in another generation. For one, they're dying out big time. But second, because there is an awakening to this. And it's going to be, it's going to get harder and pretty soon it's going to get, you know, now it's hard to find the post-trib church. Pretty soon it's going to get hard to find the pre-trib church. It's coming and I'm enjoying every second of just watching the panic and I love adding to it. I absolutely love it. You shouldn't be that way. I can't help it. I am. I love watching the panic and I, I, I can't tell you how encouraged I was that day I heard Bill Grady preaching that sermon. He was talking about this growing, booming movement, you know, and it's like, you know, you, you're talking about just how big it is and how it's in all these churches. Ever. I love it. I love hearing it. I'm hearing missionaries that I know in other parts of the world talking about it in their churches. They're dealing with it, trying to stop this post trib stuff that's going around in their churches. I love it. I've got missionaries, I've, I've had multiple missionaries. And other parts of the world who have contacted me because they've got people in their church who have mentioned me that listen, listen, they've been listening to my teaching and stuff. And some of them have asked that I removed their sermons that they preached here from my YouTube channel as a result of it. But at the same time, they have no idea how much that encourages me to know that my preaching is getting out there in those other countries. And some of them are nice about it too. Some of the missionaries I had one contact me recently, a good guy. Pre-trib, but somebody mentioned uh, you know, he, they found out where he was from and that it was close to me and, and mentioned my name and everything. And he's like, yeah, I, so I, I hear your post-trib. I'm assuming from the guy that mentioned me <laughs> in that church. And I, that just blesses my heart. All right? That really blesses my heart. You know, every, every time I hear about another, you know, I won't say that, but you know, you know Sam Gitt, man, that, that guy... This is getting to him so bad. His health's not doing too good. And I think the man's going crazy. I think uh, I think Pastor Anderson's just he run that guy through the ringer bad, and the guy's about to drop dead. You know, it's it's only a matter of time, and just seeing the panic. And I, I say that's a bad attitude. I actually I hope Sam Gipp keeps living for a long time. I want him to make it as long as possible because I want him to continue to see just how this is growing and how ineffective he is. And if he dies in the next couple of years, you know, he's not going to get to see uh, the results of his foolishness and how he has helped fuel this movement. And I personally want him to live to see it. And say so that's that's a nasty attitude. I can't help it. It's it's how I feel. Just being honest with you right now. These guys deserve it. All right? They are worthy. And so I do. I say 
you know, live long, you know, long live Sam Gip. I want you to see what is coming. If he dies, he's he's not, he's, he's not going to get to see it. But anyway, verse four that has the few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, I, so in this church, as bad as it was with as many problems as it had, there was a righteous remnant in there. And I believe that's why God's sparing this church. Because there's a righteous remnant in there. And one thing we see, I don't even have time to go to all the examples, just another principle we see in the Bible, before God ever torches places, destroys things, He always pulls the righteous remnant out. He pulls that righteous remnant out. And listen, there are, there are, there's righteous remnants in all these Baptist churches. There are saved people in all these Baptist churches. And as bad as some of the pastors are getting, as corrupt as a lot of the pastors are getting, there is a righteous remnant in many of these churches. And I believe that's one of the reasons the Lord is helping us to start so many churches because of the fact that you know that righteous remnant needs a place to go. And you know what God's doing? He's separating the sheep from the goats right now. He's getting these people out of these churches. Okay, They're exiting these churches like crazy. They're getting in good churches. You know why? Because God is finished with these other ones. God's just about finished. And these churches too that are running off, the only soul winners they have in their churches are very foolish. Those soul winners that are in these churches, I believe, are why God has spared them. And here they are being pathetic and lame and petty and so scared of being proved wrong on their pet doctrines, they are running off the only soul winners in their churches. And I personally believe they're making a big mistake because I believe those soul winners are what's preserving those churches. And they better pray those people never leave. Because they're in big trouble. And that happens. God's given them a chance to repent and they're not doing it. And so, verse 5 says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, uh, look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Matthew 10 and verse 32. Look at verse 34. So, what I believe God's doing right here, God's trying to, as God's pulling these churches out, or pulling people out of these churches, God is trying to, uh, you know, kind of separate the sheep from the goats. Okay, you know, everybody's always wanting to talk about unity today, but I personally believe that God will actually like some division, right division. All right, it, it, but look what it says in Matthew chapter ten and verse thirty-two: it "says Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men," Him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And I showed on Sunday, we kind of went through this, showing, Thou shalt confess thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. So I believe he's talking about saved people right there once again. But go, let's go to verse 7. I need to move on. I spent a lot of time in Sardis. Let's go to the church in Philadelphia. So I already showed all the examples of uh, on Sunday of those overcoming. Those are just people who are saved. And that there there is no refuting that. But verse seven it says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, what is the key of David? All right, the key of David. What is that? Well, turn to Isaiah chapter twenty-two. Isaiah chapter twenty-two. Jesus is the one who has the key. Of David, and it says, He openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, y'all need to get this, alright? I'm going to try, this, this gets a little deep here in a minute, but, you know, there's this argument out there over what the, the people that are trying to teach the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. Okay? That is baloney. That is not true. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same. I'm going to show, I'm going to show you that. But he mentions in here, he mentions the key of David. All right? I probably should preach a whole message just on the key of David. But I'm just going to briefly touch on this tonight. But uh, it says in Isaiah 22, verse 20, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah." And the key of the house of David 
will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. So is it safe to say that this key of David is what uh, I mentioned in Revelation is what it's being talked about in Isaiah 22. Alright? Very clearly. And he talks about how he's going to give it to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, he is a high priest in Israel. He's saying that he's going to give it, the key of the house of David, to him. Now, what's that talking about? I believe it's talking about that government, that authority. He's going to give it to the high priest. But wait a minute. Why would he give it to the high priest? The high priest is of Levi. And you know that, that throne and everything, that was promised to David into his line forever. Well, this clearly is a prophetical state, uh, passage here. And while it's mentioned as give, being given to Eliakim, I believe it's referring to him giving it to the priest, to the, <clears throat> to the high priest. So we got a problem. We've got one prophecy that says talks about it going to David and his line forever, and now we have another prophecy about it going to the high priest. Can anybody tell me how that those both can work? Well, they both can work if it's talking about Jesus, because was Jesus not of the house of in lineage of David, and did Jesus not become the high priest? Yes, He did. So guess what? God kept both promises. While they seemed like contradictory promises, we do see that God kept both of those promises. And there's a lot more evidence I can go to uh, to prove that, but I'm just going to just tell you what it is and you have to take my word for it for now. But um, you know, God kept both of these promises. Jesus was in the line of David you know, physically, but He was also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So... Uh, just kind of an interesting thing right there. Just showing when Jesus saying, I am He at the key of David. Alright? Just showing that He was the one with all the authority. He is the King. He is the High Priest. He is the Messiah. He's the one that God promised everything to. And what does it mean when it talks about that door that He, you know, he openeth and no man shut? Uh, Alright, I'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word, and thou hast not denied my name. I believe the open door is a reminder that whosoever will may come. Alright? The door to the kingdom, it is wide open for anybody to go through. Whosoever will may come. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. All right, and we already know what the synagogue of Satan is. We talked about it last week. All right, the synagogue of Satan are a group of people who wear yarmulkes and grow these long beards and curly locks and things, and say they are Jews, but are not. Okay, they are not Jews. Once again, don't call them Jews. They are not Jews. The Bible says they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. And let me. What is something that the synagogue of Satan is known for doing? You know what they're known for doing? They're known they the reason the Jews lost the kingdom was because they were shutting up the kingdom when God wanted it opened. Look what it says in Matthew twenty three, thirteen. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Do you all see that? Jesus told the Pharisees, You shut up the kingdom of of heaven. Alright? Now, keep that in mind. And I'm here today to tell you that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. But one of the verses that you know the retarded rucktards like to go to to prove the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are different things is they will go to, they'll show two verses where there's a conflict. The things that are different are not the same. Well, let's look at these verses they like to go to. Alright? I've... I've had like a gazillion comments left on my video showing the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same. And everybody wants to go to the, these verses. Where did they come up with this? All the dispensational books show this. I've got them all in my office. They all show this. And all of them are ignorant. Just ignorant about what the Bible is teaching. Look what it says in Romans 14, 17. This is what they like to go to. For the kingdom of God 
Okay, before we were talking about the kingdom of heaven, right here, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. All right, y'all see that? Now keep your finger there and look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12. Okay, that's talking about the kingdom of God. Now let's talk about the kingdom of heaven. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You all see that? In Romans 14, the kingdom of God is peace. But here, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. You all see? Things that are different are not the same. And so you all see that massive contradiction right there. Therefore, they can't be the same thing because one is earthly, the heaven one, which is kind of weird. Yeah, the kingdom of, as they teach, right, the kingdom of heaven, that's the earthly one, and the kingdom of God is the heavenly one. I thought heaven was up there. But anyway, you know, don't try to make sense of what pre-tribbers teach. Alright? It's just going to fail every time. Alright? But what does that mean when it says the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force? Alright? Well, let's look at Luke 16, verse 16, where Jesus is talking about the exact same thing. This is just another account, another gospel. So here it called it the kingdom of heaven in Mark. In Luke 16, it says, "...the law and the prophets were until John, since the time the kingdom of God is preached." And every man presseth into it. So here in this same passage, all right, talking about the same thing, Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And one is called the kingdom of heaven, and one is called the kingdom of God. Another example of them being used simultaneously. It's the same thing. Okay? But look at what it says. Okay, I think we can get a better idea of what he's talking about here. Because it says before, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence. What does that mean? How did the kingdom of heaven suffer violence? Well, that is a figurative term, alright? For example, when you think of a kingdom a lot of times, you know, you think of a city with walls, right? And what is it when people do when they're trying to take a city, alright? They come and they try to, you know, break through the doors, they try to break down the wall, they're gonna try to do whatever they can do to get in. And right here in Luke, when Luke is telling the same story, he words it a little bit different. But listen, the Bible doesn't contradict. This is synonymous with what he said. He said, he said, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. You know what he's saying? People are trying to get in. He's saying people are trying to get into the kingdom of heaven, but there was a problem. You had the Jews that were stopping people from it. They're trying to keep them away from it. That's what it's talking about right there. When he's talking about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence, He's not talking about just this literal violence that it's suffering. He's using a figurative term to just try to show that, hey, we've got a kingdom here and it's being crowded against. People are trying to get into it. You say, why aren't they getting in? Why? Because people were stopping them. They were being lied to. A group of people who weren't even going into the kingdom themselves are telling them that you know you can't get into heaven because you're not good enough. You've got to work your way to heaven and these people need to repent of that and that's why God sent John the Baptist. So there is no conflict. There is no contradiction in what we see in, uh, in Matthew and what we see in Romans chapter 14. What's talking about in Matthew, it is just figurative, just trying to show people are trying to get in. But the Jews, those of the synagogue of Satan, they were stopping them. That's what that is, is talking about. It's that simple. But it's just Bible ignorance. It's the, the reason they can't get it is because a dispensationalist, they can't compare Matthew 11 with Luke 16 because they can't admit Jesus is using the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven interchangeably. They can't, they can't admit that because it destroys their teaching because if the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same, they are in big, big trouble in what they're teaching about the Jews because they're teaching that they get the kingdom of heaven on earth because they're Jews. When Jesus told Nicodemus a Jew that he must be born again. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So right there, that that just destroys. That just destroys Zionism. And so they gotta make up these crazy laws and these crazy things. They gotta twist the scripture and try to find contradictions that aren't any. They have to ignore clear scripture that because they are desperate. So verse ten. I'm going slow. It says, uh, 
Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Okay? Another example of free trip double talk and inconsistency. Now all of a sudden, this is an end times thing. It wasn't end times when he said, if ye will not watch, I'll come and use a thief. Alright? And the same thing, all the examples we saw last week, ye shall have tribulation ten days. That wasn't talking about the tribulation. But now all of a sudden, when he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation, that's a tribulation. Oh, really? Keeping us from the hour of temptation is a tribulation. They will use that verse. Once again, two-faced and inconsistent when they do that. No consistency. Alright, but what is the hour of temptation? They will tell you the hour of temptation is the tribulation. Oh, the hour of temptation is seven years. Okay, cool. Alright, I get it. You know, that, that's, if, if that's what you want to do with it. But I, what is the hour of temptation? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Let me show you something here. It says, Wherefore let him that, think, that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I show you this because not every verse that talks about temptation is necessarily talking about the same temptation. Okay? This is another example of a stupid, you know, just a stupid Ruckmanite cross-reference like they like to do. Because for every verse you show me about not having temptation... I can show you another verse where we have temptation. Like that one. They're not all talking about the same thing in the same place. You can't just take a phrase and make it mean whatever you want. Just because it says hour of temptation right there, Daniel's 70th week. The tribulation. Really? You're just, that's what they will do. Why? Because they have to do that. So what, what we should be asking is not when is the hour of temptation. We should be asking, what is the word of His patience? Because He said, because you've kept the word of My patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Look at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6. Say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We were in Revelation 3 and He mentions the hour of temptation and now you're going to Revelation chapter 13 to show us they couldn't have known what it was yet because he hadn't told them that yet. Alright, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that little contradiction because I'm going to show you something here that I think is very clear. Because, alright, think about it. If you were that church, if you're the church in Philadelphia and he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation, wouldn't you probably ask the question, what is the hour of temptation? What, what is that? Okay, there's got to be an answer somewhere, right? There's got to be an answer. Or if he said, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, Okay? Well, what is the word of his patience? I need to know what that is. It's not described anywhere else, but let me show you. It actually is described, and it actually makes sense that it comes later. Look at what it says in. Lost my spot. Oh, yeah, verse 6, Revelation 13. And he opened his mouth and blasphemed against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations and all that dwell on the earth that shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killed with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Notice what he said. You know, I believe what he's saying is here it is. Here is the patience of the saints. You wanted to know what the word of the patience was? Here is the patience of the saints. Alright? Those who don't take the mark. Here, and so he says, because you've kept the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. Some will say, well, taking the mark of the beast, that's the hour of temptation. No, because keeping his patience or the patience of the saints is those who don't take the mark. So clearly, this hour of temptation is something that comes after the mark of the beast. Well, what comes after the mark of the beast? Look what it says in chapter 14 and verse 9. And the angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man shall worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, 
the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, what is the event that comes after the mark of the beast? It's the wrath of God that we have not been appointed unto. That's the event that comes after that. So when it talks about keeping the word of His patience, I believe it's referring to rejecting the mark of the beast and worshiping His image. And if you do that, then God will keep you from the hour of temptation. So obviously, the hour of temptation has to come after we keep the word of His patience. What is that? Here is the patience of the saints. So people are obviously, it's like the Lord knew. People are going to be wondering what that is. So He hasn't described it yet. So later when He describes it to them, He's saying, oh, by the way, here's that patience of the saints. Here's what you all were wondering about. Okay, Here's here's what you need to do. Don't take the mark of the beast. And if you don't do that, then you're not going to suffer the wrath of God like everyone who does take it. So, you got to define these things biblically. You can't just take a phrase like that and make it mean whatever you want. People who say the hour of temptation is the tribulation, they, they have no way to make the Bible fit that. They have no way to do that at all, especially with the book of Revelation. They can't do it. They just have to insert it or they have to use the 67th book of the Bible for dispensationalists. It's called Dispensational Truth by Clarence Larkin. That's what they've got to do. So, keeping the word of his patience is not taking the mark. The hour of temptation will be God's wrath that comes on those who did take the mark. Verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. There are some rewards that we can lose. So, and that's why you know, when he says I come quickly, I, I'm going I'm to kind of skip over this part. I'm going to be talking about this in, in future weeks. But there are rewards that we can lose. And he's coming quickly. You're not going to have time to get your act together whenever you start seeing everything go into place. You better get your act together now. I preached on that the other day, so I'm not going to rehash that. Verse 12 says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. We talked about that on Sunday. So the church in Laodicea. Now, we're all very familiar with the church of Laodicea, especially if you've ever been to a pre-trib church because they preach us all the time because we're living in the Laodicean church age because their churches are dead as a doornail because their preaching is lame because their preaching is unbiblical because they don't do any soul winning in this church because they got false doctrine in the church. That's why they're lame. But we all know this passage pretty well. I mostly just want to cover a new teaching I've recently been hearing about the Laodicean church amongst the trendies. And boy, this has gotten popular. And I've been hearing this a lot. The first time I heard this, I'm just like, what? You know, that, it just it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I was hearing it, I've been hearing this kind of going around amongst the trendies. So you know it's not biblical just by that. But I went, I thought, you know, I've got to find out where this is coming from. And, and I want to make sure I got the story right. So I Googled it. I found it in like five seconds because this is all over the internet. And the trendies love it. All right. But you all know the classic example. Uh, let's read it real quick. Now, the angels church of Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. Now, what do we teach? We teach it's better to be hot or cold than it is to be lukewarm or comfortable. In other words, it's better to be an on-fire Christian or it's even better to be somebody who's just completely out of the will of God, completely out of church, doing nothing, than being some half-in, half-out Christian. Is that not the traditional teaching of the Laodicean church? Well, I'm here today to tell you I still agree with that interpretation. Okay, But what is this new interpretation that's going out? Well, you've got to understand Laodicea. They had these aqueducts that came from these different springs toward the cities. One brought a, had a spring of hot water. Another one had a spring of cold water. Well, the problem is, by the time we get to Laodicea, sometimes the water would kind of be lukewarm and it was contaminated and had poisons and things in there. And it was bad for you. Because you see, hot water has a good purpose you know, for keeping clean, things clean and all that. 
and killing germs and everything. But cold water also has a purpose. It tastes good. And the thing is, God's saying, you know, it's not saying you, it's better to be cold than to be lukewarm or it's better to be out of church than to be half in, half out. We gotta stop telling people that. I wonder how many people have left churches and just got out of church because, you know, it wasn't good enough being, you know, lukewarm. They said you'd be better off being cold. I wonder how many people got out of church. Well, I'm gonna tell you right now, not enough. Not enough got out of church. For sure. But they're saying hot water has a good purpose and cold water has a good purpose. We ought to be one of those. We don't want to be lukewarm that's contaminated. Alright? So that's the new teaching so we can stop picking on you know, half in, half out Christians. Now here's a few problems I have with that interpretation. One, you need more than a Bible to figure that out. Okay? How are we supposed to know that? Unless we go and study archaeology and Laodicea. Alright, shouldn't we just be able to figure this out from the Bible? Alright? But here's the thing. You say, well, that, you know, isn't lukewarm better than cold? Isn't it better if somebody's in church at least some of the time and given 5% instead of giving, you know, you know, than somebody who's given nothing? No, actually, it's worse. And it makes God sick. And I'll tell you why. Because God likes clear division and distinction. While the trendies love unity. They love blending everything. And we don't, we're not, I'm not even going to take time to go to all the scriptures. But listen, Jesus didn't come to send peace. He came to send a sword. He came to set a variance. I mean, you know, they have, uh, it's supposed to be those of his own household. One of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. God likes clear division. And I believe that the tribulation is going to be the best thing that has ever happened to clean the junk out of churches. To get rid of the phonies. There's a lot of leaven in churches. There's a lot of phonies in churches. Churches are supposed to be throwing people out. We're not supposed to let leaven in. It'll leaven the whole lump. And listen, when Jesus Christ returns, He wants to have a pure church. He wants to have a clean church. And the tribulation is going to take care of business. It will get rid of the phonies. They are going to go running for sure. And those that are the real deal, they're going to stick around. And I wish I had time to go to all the passages just to show that God likes division. Okay, God, God likes that. And these, everybody wants to just blend everything today. And the tribulation, it's going to reveal the saved from the lost. And God wants to do that. And I do. I believe that you are better off, somebody is better off being either on fire for God or just living for the world. Because you know that person who's living for the world, they know they're backslidden. But that person who's kind of half in, half out, how are they? Well, you know how they are? They say, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Okay? They think they're okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm in good standing with the church. Therefore, I'm okay. No, you're wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked. You need to get right with God. But Remember what Jesus said too? He said the publicans and harlots, they're going to go into the kingdom of God before you. You know why? Because the publicans and harlots know they're bad. They know they're sinners. The Pharisee and the publican that are praying, okay, the Pharisee, he talked about all the good things he's doing. That publican, he's smiting his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why? Because he knew he was bad. The guy that was doing all the good stuff, and he probably was doing every one of those things he said, was in a bad place because of the fact, you know, he's thinking, I'm all that in a bag of chips, but the bad guy knows he's bad. And the thing is, we've got a lot of people out there that are in the world today, they know they're bad. And you know what? They're often the ones that receive the gospel when we try to give it to them. But who are the people that usually slam the door in our face? It's the religious people. I'm a Methodist. You know, I'm a Catholic. You know, I go to this church. I go to that church. I, and they're the ones that are the ugliest to it. You know why? Because the last thing they want us to do is get them out of their comfort zone. They're comfortable. They're lukewarm. And so those people, and they are, are they not a problem? I mean, are, are unscriptural churches not a problem for us? They are a huge problem. And I, I would rather go solely in an area where there are no churches than an area where there's 50 churches. Like in our area. Those people are more ready to hear the Gospel. But you do. You fill a building up with a bunch of lukewarm people. Many times they're not even saved. And what do they do? They, just, they mess everything up. They mess everything up. And I believe 
it's better to be cold or hot, just like Jesus said. And the trendies, they can, you know, they just they just don't even like preaching against being lukewarm. That's how lame they are. So what do they do? They gotta change they gotta change what it means. But I, I personally think they're dead wrong on that. And I don't know who started that. I don't know which guy it was, but he's probably wearing skinny jeans. You know, he probably looks like a homo. Just like that that's who these guys gravitate towards. But look what it says in verse 18. It says, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see what these people need. They need to see the truth. That's what they need. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Listen, Pastor Trendy, if you actually loved your people, you would actually rebuke them. You would actually call on them to repent. But what are they haven't seen this picture of people have been going around sharing? Showing just kind of the typical preacher day. You got somebody drowning in the water, just one arm sticking out, and they're like high fiving the guy. I, I, I love that picture. And what, I forgot what all it says on there, but that's like your typical preacher day. You got a guy drowning. He needs help. He needs saving. And instead of trying to help the guy, what do they do? They just give him a high five. Hey, let's make him feel good while he's about to drown. And what are, what are these churches doing today? These trendy churches? They're making people feel good while they're still on their way to hell. And even if some of these people are saved, they're making them feel good about being in their sin when, who knows when, but maybe before long, they're going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to give an account. And the Bible says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But they make Jesus sound like just some little hippie that just all peace, love, and everything's just wonderful and Jesus never judges. No, Jesus is a righteous judge. And he and he's coming back. Better get these people ready. But God rebukes and chastens those He loves, and so do pastors. They will rebuke those that they love, and if necessary, chasten. All right. We don't give people spankings or anything like that. We'll throw them out of church. All right. That's how it's done. We're gonna call them out. Call those things out. Verse twenty. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This isn't about salvation, but it is about fellowship. And we want Jesus Christ fellowshipping with our church. We want a fellowship. So we don't need to be a lukewarm church. Jesus doesn't want to be around a bunch of lukewarm believers. So you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to get the lukewarm out of here. And we, there needs to be some division. That's why if we preach hard, if we preach the truth, if we call stuff out, if we throw people out that need to be thrown out, we won't have that problem. And so the cold people, they know they're cold. There's a lot of people. They know they're backslidden. Yeah, I'm, I've been in church in five years. I, I know I'm backslidden. You know, that person has more hope than that person sitting in the pew to doing nothing for God except filling 18 inches of seat. That, that person, that, that person, they're in trouble. They think they're taking care of their, it's like they're doing their penance every week. Showing up for church. Throw a little something in the offering plate. I'm all good. God doesn't think that. In fact, you make him sick. You better, you better get over it. But verse uh, 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So there's nothing, absolutely nothing in these two patches, passages teaching anything about church ages. Nothing. Every one of these churches have things that churches for the last 2,000 years have had. Churches can relate to. We, there's things that we, all of us can relate to. We've been in these churches. And there have always been, there still are churches like every one of these we see in Revelation. Yes, the average Baptist church in the U.S. is a lot like the Laodicean church. But I personally believe that that's just because Laodicea was wealthy. They thought, I'm increased with goods and have need of nothing. And is that not how we are in the United States? But is that how it is in the Philippines? Is that how it is in Mexico? Is that how it is in all the other parts of the world? No. Okay. Newsflash, Fox News Baptist. The United States is not the only place on the planet. There's a lot of other countries and there's a lot of other churches a lot of other countries and not all of them are as lame as the ones here. And you know what? Here's another news flash for these people too. Not every church in the United States is lukewarm. Okay? Yours just is, but not all of them are. So ultimately, the real reason 
for teaching church ages is because they desperately need Revelation 4 to be the rapture. That's all there is to it. They desperately need Revelation 4 to be the rapture. And the Bible doesn't teach it, but Schofield's notes do. And we'll take a look at that next week and show the foolishness of that. But I hope this was a help to you. Let's go ahead and pray to your Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness to us. I pray you'll help us to learn from these things. Help us to um, learn from all the examples in this church. Lord, help us to learn from the good and bad and help us to do the good and avoid the bad. pray you'll just uh, continue to bless the study as we go uh, and we get into some of the things that are to come. In your name we pray. Amen.